This week we'll be discussing an inevitable part of being a pet parent. At some point, we have to say goodbye. I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and this week is Pet Grief Awareness Week. Every day I'll be interviewing pet loss experts, grief counselors, and professionals who have dedicated their lives to helping people just like you before, during, and after the loss of an animal's soulmate. We'll be covering all of the topics that gives heartbroken humans the best support. Anticipatory grief, how to know when to say goodbye and what to expect, and how to manage grief, guilt, and forgiveness. We'll also be talking about ways you can help celebrate your animal's life and memorialize your pet. I hope you find today's interview helpful as you journey through your grief. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker and joining me today, I'm so thankful, is Dr. Danny McVetty. She is the founder and CEO of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice and In-Home Euthanasia. And she's here to answer some of the most important questions we have pertaining to pet loss, euthanasia, hospice, and she's here in person via Skype to help us work through some of those important questions. So thank you, Dr. Danny, so much for joining us. We appreciate everything you do, and we're really looking forward to this discussion. Thank you, Dr. Karen. So happy to be here. So I have a question for you because I have referred so many people to to use your services, and they have been so incredibly thankful. They were unaware of the amazing platform that you started, and they were so incredibly thankful to have learned about it. So for our listeners and readers that don't know the amazing work that you're doing, if you could walk us through a little bit about how and why you became a veterinarian, and then how you went from veterinarian to starting this unbelievable platform of serving people in a much needed way that wasn't previously available. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I think probably all of us, we start our career thinking we're going to be going one way and then it kind of takes us, you know, a different way. So I never thought this is where my career would go ever. Um, I want to be veterinarian kind of since, you know, since, since I imagined what I would be doing with my life, it was the only job I could think of that I could bring my dog to work. So that's how I picked it. <laughs> Smart. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and it just kind of stuck. It never, it never went away. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of worked my, my butt off through high school and college and vet school, as you know, and kind of, you know, it got to that point of actually crossing the, the, that line and becoming a veterinarian, which was amazing. And then I think like a lot of us, I looked around and I'm like, now what I've worked my whole life to be here. Now, what am I going to do? And I started doing emergency medicine at first because I love the fast pace of emergency medicine. I, I, I thought I was going to do equine, but a lot of us ended up in, you know, small animal. So I was doing emergency medicine and there's this one lady that, that called one night and it was about 10 o'clock at night. And she said, you know what? I, I have a 120 pound German shepherd. I can't get him in my car. What do I do? Can you please send someone out to me? And we, I literally looked at my, look, looked at my nursing staff and I'm like, what, what do we do? I think I was a week out of school at this point, you know, wow. and a little, I'm like, what, what do we do? And, and they said, they're like, there's nobody that does this. Nobody comes to the home. So we literally would, you know, you just coach them in, put a sheet under your dog, roll them onto the sheet, you know, hammock them into the car, that type of thing. So she did that and she showed up at the clinic about an hour and a half later. And we had to euthanize her dog. He was, he was in bad shape and you know elderly and her hand was cut open he had bit her you know and he's not an aggressive dog but when yeah. these large dogs are you know in pain and so he, he bit her and she had to go from our emergency room to the human emergency room to get stitched up and 
to me, that was a little bit of a start of like, you know, no one else is doing this. And this is a big, big service. And then as I grew as an emergency clinician, I would tell people, you know, we, they come in on a Friday and we all know that this is the end of life of their pet, right? Like we all know that this is what's going to end up happening, but we don't have to euthanize that day. We can euthanize tomorrow. We can euthanize Sunday or Monday, or maybe next week even. And as a veterinarian, I'm trained to keep your pet out of pain and to keep them calm and sedate and, you know, and comfortable. That's, that's my training is to keep your pet out of pain. I can do that. And even if it's for a day or two or five, I can do that. So I would call that hospice care and just literally just kind of evolved. It was a, Hey, you know what? I'll come tomorrow morning. I'll come on Sunday. I'll come next week when your wife, when your husband, when your kids are back in town and it just, and you know, you know, I think the most amazing thing of it all, Dr. Karen is that I loved it. Yeah. It wasn't something, you know, you get it. Veterinarians. Yes. Get it, right. Because people look at us and they say, how could you do this? This must be the yeah. worst day that what a, what a depressing way to, you know, spend your time. And, and I always said, I'm like, no, this is, I, this is so fulfilling to me. Oh, and it's, it's the most important aspect of our jobs yeah, is, yeah. you know, our clients have had done an amazing job of having these animals live amazing lives. We have to hold up our end of the deal of helping them have an amazing transition. And that can be really hard if you can't lift your 200 pound massive in the back of your car, or if you are waiting for your kids to get home from college, to be able to have the family together for this really important time. So there, there wasn't this service out there. So then how did it, how did you, how were you able then to get colleagues in different States? And because you, how many different lap of love, uh, I, I don't know if you call them locations or locations or mobile services or like you, how many do you have now? We have close to 250 doctors. Uh with us now and yeah, and a team of almost 500, we'll be, we'll be over 500, you know, total. And we have about, gosh, about, uh, um, about 200, um, team members that answer the phones for families as well. And many of those are doctors that just physically aren't able to, to do the physical, you know, parts of veterinary medicine anymore. And many of them are veterinary nurses and yeah. And you know, it, it went from, it was just me, right. It was literally just me doing this on the side. And I thought I was going to, have a great little part-time job, you know, between emergency evening shifts. And, and what, what happened was it just kind of developed. And I had, I volunteered for human hospice when I was in college, just kind of on a whim. And I took a lot of those philosophies that human hospice mm-hmm. does and brought them into what I was doing, meaning mm-hmm. you're treating the, 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 the patient, you know, you're treating this relationship that they have with their family member. And that's more important than, than the disease. And I would do things like use certain medications, you know, at a super high dose and other veterinarians would say like, why are you doing that? You know, you're going to cause serotonin syndrome. And I'm like, I haven't seen it yet. And this dog is screaming in pain and I'd rather him not scream in pain and we're euthanizing tomorrow. So I'm going to get him through the night, you know, just these little things that were like to me in, in, in my young mind, pushing the boundaries with, and I didn't really know. I just knew that this, this, this patient needed it. Yep. And I think that philosophy really kept caught on with people in the Tampa Bay area. And it just kind of kept growing. And then probably I was maybe six, eight months at it after I had started. And mind you, I'm still doing an ER work at the same time. Oh. And I started getting calls from veterinarians around the country asking me, how do you do this? What do you do? How do you handle these patients? How do you handle, you know, how did you start up? And I, I was raised by two entrepreneurs that didn't go to college. You know, my parents just started a business and they're just these brilliant, very personable, you know, emotionally intelligent people. And 
so the, the business side of it has always come relatively easy to me because I just nice. like it, you know, and I just like doing more of it. So when I would talk to other veterinarians uh, in different states, they would say things like, well, how do you start it up? I'm like, well, you have to go and you have to read your state statutes and then you have to make sure that it's you're abiding by blah, blah, blah. And they were like, whoa, 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 I don't want to do that. You know? Yep. So that's when I saw this opportunity of like, oh my gosh, this is something that I can take the foundation that I've already laid. You know, yes. I wrote every word in the brochure, every word in the, on the website, I wrote everything still to this day, almost, almost everything that's on there. You know, I, I wrote and, and I enjoy that part of it too. So I can take that foundation and have other doctors join on. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of it. And I, I partnered with a classmate of mine in vet school who and I shared a microscope freshman year in, in a vet school. And she was a second career veterinarian. Her first career was software design. Mm. So I called Dr. Mary and I was like, Mary, I need a software to help me do this. And, you know, she kind of just got it instantly. And so good. Yeah. From there, we were able to kind of scale that up and bring other doctors. And, and to your point, you know, the thing that has surprised me the most about this work is that other doctors love it too. Oh, well, it and good. you're, well, it, it's such, it's such a monumental gift to our, to, to, to veterinary medicine, first of all, to our profession. So pet parents out there listening, euthanasia is something that obviously can be done very well or can be done terribly. And we need to avoid any missteps, mishaps, anything that could go poorly. We need to do everything we can to minimize that. And yet veterinarians, we, we are taught euthanasia in veterinary school, but that isn't necessarily up until now, anyone's full-time focus, what you have done in essence, Danny, is you have, you have brought the, the, the art of hospice done well to veterinary medicine in a way that allows veterinarians who maybe didn't have the experience or the time to be able to do it. You're offering them an opportunity for all of their patients to die well, because it's your sole focus and someone needed to do it and you did it. And it's the best gift to veterinary medicine. I think this century. I'm so thankful for your very hard work and your passion in helping animals die beautifully. It's such an important piece of, of medicine that up until now hasn't been really done well across the board in a, in a platform that allows veterinarians to say, Hey, I, I can see that I'm not doing maybe this part of my, my practice. Well, where can I go to get tips or suggestions or who can I refer to that? Who focuses this? I'm unable to drive and do in-home hospice care. Who can I refer to? You're answering all the questions and the needs of veterinarians while also simultaneously supporting our pet parent community in a way that has not been offered previously. So what you're doing is tremendously important, maybe one of the most important things in veterinary medicine. So I cannot, I have profound gratitude for everything that you're doing. I have to then assume that because you've made this your sole focus and your passion as a career, that you are leading the way in helping veterinarians recognize that we can't do everything. There's not enough hours in the day to be available for everything that we need. And you're actually filling this niche of in-home euthanasia so for many people. Are you in all 50 states right now? We are in 36 states at, at the moment. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure it is your goal to not just be in every state, but to have a multitude of different availabilities in every state. And I, I think that that's totally coming. 
for the people who are blessed to be able to have your services available in their state, it is something that I can tell you having personally referred people to your service. It's a godsend. And part of it is your doctors, nurses, your, the entire organization is trained to focus on this last chapter of life. And that's such an important thing because even as pet parents, if, if our clients are in denial or haven't thought about this or have pushed it off, your people are ready and trained and willing and competent to be able to step up when there's crisis happening, intervene in a loving, thoughtful, compassionate way and help pet parents through this unbelievable, difficult time. So that is a piece of veterinary medicine that also hasn't necessarily been fleshed out and reworked and retooled to be revamped, to be the best quality medicine until now. So you're bringing to light a lot of things that have not been done well necessarily across the board in veterinary medicine, and you're fixing those things. And, and that's such a gift for people that not only both have your services available and how about international, just as a second, I mean, are you, are you in other countries or not quite yet? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. And we've, we've wanted to, and we want to, and that will be in the planet sometime soon. You know, honestly, right now there's so much that we need to do in the United States still yes. that it's hard for us to, to focus outside. But I, I hope that in the next few years, we'll be, we'll be moving probably Canada first because there's yes. so much, you know, contiguousness right there. Yeah. And over, you know, across the pond at some point. Wonderful. Wonderful. I have to assume that the vast majority of the calls coming in, or if people call to set up an appointment, the number one burning question for all of us is how, how do we know? Yeah. How do we know it's time? And not only have you had to rework that question and answers to that question over and over and over, you have trained everyone in your organization. I mean, this is a, this is a topic that you have reworked and retooled and thought about, and you really, I think potentially are in the best position to answer this question, maybe worldwide in that you are collecting bodies of empathetic, competent doctors who do this for a living. And so there they see case after case of being able to authentically counsel people through this really tough question. So for people, listeners, readers, yeah, just you, maybe you can touch on that. And then, and we'll talk about like how you have, how you got to this point. Yeah. I mean, it is what we do. How will I know it's time is what we do. And that's why it's called lap of love veterinary hospice and in-home euthanasia. It's not just euthanasia. We don't just come and euthanize when you're ready. We come in when you don't know what else to do and you need some guidance. And that's what we do. You know, unfortunately in in COVID, we had to stop in-home hospice care for a little bit, but we rolled out our tele-advice line so that we could answer that question over the phone. Now we're finally restarting hospice here coming up, but you know, just to to your point, it's probably the most important question that we answer as veterinarians is how do I know when it's time to say goodbye? And the, the number one thing that is important when taking into account that conversation is the disease process that your pet has because you and I have both seen families that have a mastiff that has arthritis. And that's very, very different than managing a chihuahua that has arthritis, you know, which does happen. I remember there was this little tiny chihuahua that this gentleman had, and he, his dog probably didn't walk for two years. He had him in his little a pouch, you know, in his little, the front and it was adorable, but you know, you can't do that with the mastiff, right? right. So 
how do I know when it's time is going to be different for that mastiff that has advanced arthritis that maybe has come to the end of what can medically be um, managed, you know, versus a chihuahua that can be held 24 seven. It's very, very different. And the same thing goes with different disease processes. You know, if you have a disease process that affects maybe the heart or the lungs or the brain, you know, those organs work until the second that they don't, it's a cliff. And once they start going downhill, it's fast. And you may not have time to then get an in-home doctor to come to your home and have this peaceful death experience, you know, so the type of quality of, of death, which is really what we talk about a lot in, 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 in a lap of love is, you know, quality of life is something that happens in the general practice when you're managing cases and you're managing disease processes. But when it comes to the end, we're managing the quality of death that you want. Yeah. And do you want to get in the, into the car at 2 a.m. and rush to the emergency room because you waited to the last minute? And, you know, we don't always have that ability to know when the last minute is. But that's how I, that's how I talk to the families that we help, which is, what do you want? Do you, do you want to eke out every last moment until you, that you possibly can, knowing that you're risking an emergency trip, you know, to the emergency room at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is why I started Lab of Love in the first place, so that you don't have to do that. Or do you want an experience where your entire family is on the beach at sunset and your dog is in a, on a, you know, a beautiful towel surrounded by family and candles and everyone says a prayer and we deliver this medication and they peacefully drift off to sleep. Like that's possible, right? Like that's a possible thing that can happen. It's better than any of us are going to get. Yep. And I can guarantee you that that will happen, but we can't wait till the last moment. You know, so there's that conversation. And the way that I explain it to people is that there's a subjective period of time when euthanasia is a good decision. It may not be your only decision, but it's a good decision. And out after this period of time, is it's an emergency room trip. And that's not a very peaceful decision, right? And before this time, there's a quality of life that exists that most veterinarians are going to say no to, right? But that's that's not where we have the conversation. We have the conversation here, which is between these two boundaries, it's an appropriate decision. And some people like to push every last minute that they can, again, risking that. And some people have done this multiple times and they don't wanna go down that road again and they wanna make the decision at the beginning, which is very fascinating. I don't know if yeah. you've seen that, Dr. Karen, but yeah. very fascinating. The people that have been through it, a very, very long emotional roller coaster yes. in the past, they a lot of times don't wanna do it again. Yeah. And they say goodbye sooner, sooner. And, and it's interesting. I absolutely have seen that. And what I also find interesting is that when you see enough death as you, and I have, you have clues, we are tipped onto how the body is going to die. And even though we can tell our, the families I'm seeing this, and this is lining up to my best professional recommendation would be, you know, you may have 48 hours left and those 48 hours could be rocky. It's going to get progressively worse. You could see symptoms that are very concerning to you and are incredibly uncomfortable for your beloved. Do we want to go down this dark path where there is no light at the end of the tunnel? So we're asking these animals to keep giving of their bodies, which are already weak, debilitated, and they're in the active dying process. How far are we, how much are we going to ask of the thing we love most? Are we going to ask everything. Are we going to ask them to go to the bitter end, having no fiber of who they are left? Or are we going to stop short of that and give them this space yeah. to not have to get to the bottom 
of their bodies. And people who have been through euthanasia or an animal death before will oftentimes say, I'm going to choose to euthanize my animal on a good day, knowing that they're terminal, I'm going to choose a good day. And that tells me that they're, they have been down this path before. You're exactly right. That means that they understand. And some people, you know, will will show up to their home and they'll say, it's a good day. Maybe I shouldn't do it today. And I have to sit. I'm like, look, you, you might be right. And I would never ask you to do something you don't want to do. So let's just start with that. But second of all, let's look at this. And that if, if you want to wait until he's suffering, I promise you the people that do that actually regret their pet suffering in the first place. Yes. And then the conversation, you know, comes, you, you, usually what they do is they get out of that, that head space and they go, but I, I just want to do what's right. I just want to do what's natural. And, I'm, and then, then I have to have the conversation. Look, your 21 year old cat isn't natural, period. Mm-hmm right? Mm-hmm. Your bulldog isn't natural period. Right. Yeah. So we have to may have these conversations about what's that. And then they'll say, well, I just want to go to sleep and not wake back up. And I say, that's what actually what euthanasia is, yeah. is they go to sleep and not wake back up. But if we want to look at what ma- what mother nature has intended, then my gosh, turn on national geographic and you're going to see, you know, lions are eating the zebras and they're alive still like mother nature is not going to be quick. She's not going to be painless. She did not intend for things to happen, but I will tell you that I do believe mother nature did not intend for animals to maybe lie there for weeks and months. Right. As sometimes we can get into those conversations when maybe the decision is extremely hard, you know, and when a dog is down and not able to get back up, typically in a natural environment, sickness or a predator would come get them and would stop that suffering. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're able to medicate through that and make sure that our pets are comfortable, you know, so it's not, obviously it's not the same exact experience for them, but to your point, it is, I think a a big, it is a big, I use the word with as much gravity as needed, but not judgment. It is a duty for us to help that end of life experience for the pet be as peaceful as it can be. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, the alternative side to that is that sometimes when when I say that some people can maybe feel like it's a judgment when they weren't able to make that decision soon enough for their pet, or maybe their pet did suffer and they didn't know about it. I, I remember I was a sophomore in undergrad when my childhood dog, my parents came home and found her dead in the crate, you know, and we were all like, oh my gosh, I didn't see it. I didn't know she, you know, she gave us like 18 years and we just left her in the crate and she died. Like it was, it was hard. You know, there was a lot yeah. of self-judgment for that. But when that happens to people, I want them to understand that there still is a natural process of life. And it is not a requirement of us to euthanize our animals. We sometimes believe that it is, right? We almost think that we are we have to euthanize our animals, but we don't. There, there will be, mother nature will take care of this, whether or not you make the decision or not. And I have that, and I, I say that to people that are having a really hard time with the decision that look, you are in a, you're in a position of assuming that you have to make this decision. It might get made without you. And there is a blessing in that, you know, sometimes a blessing that you don't have to make that decision. And do you provide services? I I have had some clients that for usually religious reasons, they just don't believe in euthanasia. And what I say to them is then we have to partner together to work exceptionally hard at making sure that your animal's physical body is in the least amount of writhing, overwhelming, excruciating discomfort, pain as a natural death, which of course being heavily medicated, there's already questions there, but we need to do what we can't do is say, we're just going to let nature take its course because it's inhumane. And do do your hospice people, if people decide to, to not choose euthanasia, are you able to 
provide ongoing hospice care at a level that you feel comfortable with? Is, is that a service you provide? It, it is, you know, and it is a main core philosophy of who we are, which is we're going to give this family time to make that decision. And sometimes either the decision gets made for you or you're not in a position that you want to make that decision. And it's a very big deal for me just personally that we don't judge people that want to go through that. Um, I've been in many situations over the years where people were either against euthanasia or, you know, wanting to hold out until somebody else gets, gets home. And we're trying to manage pain and discomfort and, and suffering so that this pet is as comfortable as possible. But I can tell you that the common thread with all that is that these people love their animals. Of course. They love their pet. Of course. Right? And if they're making that decision, then they, they are not the type of person that just dumps their dog on the side. Exactly. Of the and, no. and there, and I asked that question because for people that say, I don't want to pick euthanasia that are listening to or reading this article or listening to this interview, you have a veterinary hospice team in lap of love that is not going to judge you for doing that. And most importantly is also not going to let your animal suffer unnecessarily. So it is important to know that if you decide that you're not going to choose euthanasia, that you are working with a veterinarian that will support you and be there for you. But most importantly, manage your animal through the dying process. It's really important that you not go alone through this process and that your animal is not alone through this process. Yeah, no, you are, you are exactly right. And, and, you know, I, I, the other way that I describe euthanasia, which sometimes helps people understand where euthanasia fits in this whole process is that euthanasia is like an epidural for death, right? An epidural coming from, I've had four babies, three of which were born at home. The other one was a C-section. So I've had an epidural, you know, but I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of, uh, uh, respect for the natural process of coming into this world and going out of this world as well. And an epidural is there to make a process that is otherwise going to happen on its own. Ask anyone that's had a baby, that baby's going to come out, right? Some way, shape or form. That epidural makes that process just a little bit more peaceful. The same way with euthanasia is that euthanasia is going to make a process that's going to happen anyway, just a little bit more peaceful. So it's not the end all be all. It's not the only way to do it. It's just something that makes it peaceful. So, you know, and, and if, if, if you're somebody that doesn't want euthanasia, Again, that's completely fine. You know, we need to make sure that we've got really good medication on board, just like in human hospice, part of that medication may be sedation. And just like in human hospice, sometimes when you have that sedation on board, the body then is relaxed enough to actually die, die in, yep. you know, in that weird way. And that's why people say like, once they start morphine, it's kind of the beginning of the end. But, but what happens is that it calms the body so much that you don't have adrenaline pumping and you don't have these hormones, just keeping this body going and going and going, which also can cause suffering you relax the body and the body and, and the soul gets to a place where it's able to kind of pass on. Yeah. And it can be tough for people to think that way. And they can even, I've, I've given lectures for human hospice groups and people will come up to me and say, like, when we start morphine, I always feel like I'm making them die. And it's like, but you're not, you're, you're resting the body. Yeah. We're resting the body, which is what we want. And I have found that as a, as a proactive wellness doctor, my entire philosophy, my focus, who I am as a human is to do everything we can to prevent the body from breaking. So my clients have found it exceptionally difficult when kind of the queen of wellness medicine says, we're going to stop all supplements. 
we're going to stop all of those proactive things we were doing to try and slow down disease. Yeah. Antibiotics. That's right. Yeah. And, or, you know, they're making free range grass fed homemade meals and we're going to switch to feeding peanut butter and, and bacon because that's what, yeah. And sausage, right. Or an egg McMuffin. They're like, you're recommending an egg McMuffin. I'm like, your animal is in hospice. And when they tell me all he'll eat is egg McMuffins, guess what my recommendation for food is? It's going to be a whole lot of egg McMuffins. And people say, I can't believe you, Dr. Becker is saying that your animal's dying. And all of those life rules go out the window when you're dying. And that's what I love about hospice. Like that is the philosophy of hospice is I'm going to care more about the happiness and the, and this, the mental happy, you know, the mental state of you and your pet, both of them together. Cause it's not just your pet. Yes. It's you also, right. And it's, and it's you being able to be there for your pet and is it draining you and how much of this can you take like that? People don't like to talk about that. That's like that ugly side of it, you know, but I, after we talk about their pet, I always dig into them. Yeah. What are you? And it's so important. And the reason that I think this conversation is so important is that you are in the process of training hundreds and hundreds of professionals to be there for people in a way that they didn't even know that they needed. You know, they're, you're, they're, they've called a veterinarian and they assume that this is going to be focused on their animal. And yet, and yet the relationship is critical. And you as the pet parent is a, or you're a, you're an integral piece of that and protecting and preserving how you're doing, supporting you, support of the human is, is, is an important facet uh, and as well as supporting the animal. So doing both simultaneously is one of the most important aspects of how you are doing euthanasia differently than, than other veterinarians. And so important. I'll give you a quick little thing on how, how, how we support the families too. So, and and again, I, I cannot tell you how many times I have gone into a home and it's a hospice appointment and I get in there and again, salt of the earth people, right? The people that call a service like me, like you are just the best people. So I get in and they're talking about their pet and everything they've done that they've done. And usually there's a stack of paper, you know, that kind of is a representation of how much they care about their animal, right? Like all these things that they're trying to show me and they'll start talking and they're, they're talking as if we're going to be doing long-term hospice care, but I'm always, I'm listening to what they're saying in between and how they're saying it. And obviously I've done this for many, many years. So I can, I can, I can read different things. And at one point in the conversation, I usually get to this topic of like, are, do you just want permission to say goodbye mm. and you are tapped out emotionally, all that stuff. And, and I obviously I say it much nicer than that, you know, but usually I, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of probe a little bit to see where they're at on these things. And so many times those appointments will turn into euthanasias at that appointment because huh. they are just, they are so drained yeah. and they don't want to be, they don't mm. want to be. But as soon as I give them permission to mm-hmm. think that it's okay, then, you know, then all of a sudden a gate opens and we get to have a, a, you know, a conversation that goes somewhere else than where they think it's going to go. Yeah. But the four things that I always say, there's four budgets that people have. There's a financial budget, which is obvious, right? You know, there's only so much you can afford. And yes, we can do in-home hospice care every single day, but that is going to be financially limiting to most people. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's financial budget. There's the emotional budget, which is probably the most important. It's the, um, the fact that this dog belonged to my father that died and, or belong to my spouse that died or belong to my kid that's committed suicide. And now losing my pet is losing that person again, or insert any other story. I have a thousand of them, you know, that, that what that animal means to them. So there's an, there's an emotional component of that decision. And then there's also a physical component to it. 
um, you know, the uh, hospicing a mastiff is different than hospicing a chihuahua, right? And then the fourth thing is um, uh, actually time as well. So maybe you're a single mom working two jobs and you can financially afford the medication, but I just don't have time to give medication to my pet every six hours. I, I just can't. So there's all these different components about how we make the decision to euthanize and whether or not we decide to say goodbye sooner rather than later, or we decide to continue to push on for a little bit. So there's all these, all these different you know, facets of it that, that you don't always think about until you kind of get into the weeds. Well, and I think these are great conversations to have for people that have either been through a euthanasia that they would have looking back, they would have done things differently. The nice thing about lap of love is that you are creating an environment where diversity is okay. And you're open to working with whatever, whatever that pet parent has in their heart, you are going to make it to the best of your ability. You're going to work with them and meet their needs along with their animals needs to whatever their expectations are. And in some situations they don't know, and then you can step in and offer, you know, these are all of your options. I think that both scenarios are really important. What do you say, Danny, when you have clients that say, I just believe that my animal will tell me when they're ready to go? That if they have that confidence, I think that that's wonderful. The problem is that they're usually told that from someone else. Right. Because you will know. And they're looking at me and they're like, I've been told I will know. I don't know. What do I do? How will I know? What's what's the look? Is this the look? Is that the look? Like, what's the look? You know? <laughs> so that's a bigger problem. But if somebody says to me, I will know, or I've been through this five times, I will know. I just want you to have my information so that when I call you, I'm ready. 99% of the time, that person has that confidence because they have been through that. But again, I worry more about the people that don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I would say for the people that don't know, assuming that your pet is going to give you some sign and then they don't, they, they maybe just start Mm -hmm. agonal breathing or they start actively dying. And you're like, well, heck did I miss it? Did my pet not do it? Then you get a little frustrated. So I would just say from my vast experience with people that said, no, I'm waiting for a sign. I'm my big concern is, is that some animals don't give you a sign. Some animals wait for you to go pee or go to the mailbox or leave the room. If you're hovering over them, you leave that room for 30 seconds. And they're like, I'm taking this opportunity and I'm out of here. And they check out when it, it happens all the time. It happens in human hospice too. Oh yeah. That is yes. a very, very typical thing in human hospice where everyone's been in the room, everyone's there, you know, mom's supposed to die anytime soon. And then so somebody leaves right for a little bit. And all of a sudden, like they, they pass that's, yes. and that, that's why like a human hospice nurse gave me that phrase. You have to give the soul space to die. Yeah. And I, that has always resonated. I get goosebumps when I say it, you know, but that has always resonated with me, but no, and I, I, and now I understand a little bit more about what specifically you're asking. And I think one of my pet peeves is when people call me or a friend will say, Hey, Danny, I gave your num- number to so-and-so they're going to call you when they're ready, or they're going to call you when their dog starts suffering, or I've got your number. I'll call you when he starts going downhill. And I'm like, no, no, you got to call me now yeah. so that I can help you through that process. Because if your Yorkie has congestive heart failure, I promise you, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. And if you let your pet get to that cliff, it's going to go downhill really fast. And that dying process is going to be very, very, very difficult for you to emotionally get through. And that's very different than, you know, a, 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 a splenic, you know, cancer or bone cancer, like these things, the disease process is the most important component to how you will know when it's time. 
And that means you need to get your veterinarian or us or somebody that does this, get in a conversation with them and specifically say, tell me how an animal dies from this disease. What happens? In the wild, there's no medical care. What happens? And you need to have that frank conversation so that you know what you're dealing with. Because again, some of these diseases, we call them imminent. They're going to be going downhill very fast. And some are non-imminent, like the general malapathy, right? The German shepherds get all the time. That can be months. You might be dealing with a situation for months and months and months, sometimes years, you know, kidney failure on cats, years, they can live with that. And it depends on what your expectations are for your pet, what you've been through before, what your pet can emotionally handle. Yeah. Great Danes handle pain differently than a little Chihuahua does. At a little rat terrier, she couldn't take any type of pain, you know, but my, my other little lab mix, he could take everything. Yeah. So you just, you know, you just, you just never know. Yeah. So that's why it's important to put this whole picture together. And then from there, you make an educated decision based on what you want. When do you suggest that people contact if they have available? So two questions, if they have hospice care available to them, and if they're interested, when do you contact uh, that, that, that veterinarian? That veterinarian, you know, I, what, what, what I typically say is, is that it's, it's best to reach out when your general practitioner has basically said we're in hospice care now, or, and they might not even know to use that word because that word has not been used a lot in veterinary medicine, but they may say something like, there's nothing more we can do. Right. That's typically what they say. Or when you go back into the veterinarian and it's like, well, we're, no, we're just going to do CBC chem radiology. We're going to do all the things again. And you're like, well, what's it going to mean to my pet? And they, they, maybe they can't answer that question. You know, that's at that point when you say, I don't want to continue bringing my dog or my cat in for just more tests. I want something else. I want a philosophy of care to be a little bit different. That's when it's time to, to reach out. And there are many, many veterinarians out there. And I don't want to understand, or I don't want to forget to say this. There are many veterinarians out there. They're general practitioners that love hospice care mm -hmm. and they're, mm -hmm. they love it. And they'll walk you through everything. They may not be able to do an in-home euthanasia because to do that, you have to exit your practice, which is very you know, expensive for people to exit their practice. Um, but they may do an amazing job helping you through this. There are some doctors, like there's a doctor down the road from me who lives here in Tampa, Florida, who, and I, and I treat everybody's clients. So I know all the doctors that people love and all the doctors that people are going to be not going back to, you know, and hit this guy's clients love him. I mean, they rave about him. He hates euthanasia. Mm. He hates it. And he told me, he's, he's like, I just don't like it. I don't even have euthanasia in my, in my practice. Wow. I don't want to do it, which is crazy, right? Like we think that that's nuts. But he, his clients are so well set up for that conversation once they get to me. Yep. And I like, I know, I know what they need. I know what they want. I know he hasn't talked about euthanasia yet, but he has talked about, you know, a little bit more of end care. So it's, uh, you know, every veterinarian has their own comfort level with that. So if you're not happy with the conversation you've had from, with your general practitioner, maybe go online and find another doctor that is skilled in this conversation and you'll find that. But if not, I think, I think you'll find that most doctors are, are very good at at least beginning the conversation. And that's perfect. You basically answered. My second question was because there are not lap of loves available everywhere. What do we do? But I couldn't agree more. If you, not every veterinarian handles euthanasia the same way. Some veterinarians that you just mentioned are not all of our skill sets can't be amazing at everything. So if you have a doctor that you feel like is hesitant about discussing euthanasia, you ask about the protocols and you would like to know more and your veterinarian isn't giving you the answers that's resonating well with you, you can, you, it's a-okay to have a general practitioner 
that you love and decide to go elsewhere for end of life care. It's a okay to blend different doctors, different people that have passions in different areas. It's, it's okay to add people to your healthcare team at the end of your animal's life without any guilt. And that's important because deciding that you're going to commit to only stay with one doctor. And if your doctor doesn't do euthanasia or death, well, you that's going to damage your relationship with that doctor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I look at, I'm not good at dermatology. I don't, I really, I, yeah. just, <laughs> I, just, I just don't like it. It's not exciting yes. to me, you know? So I'm not going to handle that well. And I it was emergency room doctor. Like, I don't know dermatology, you know? Yes. But so it's just important to respect that in everybody. And, and yes. if you need that, if you need something more, you know, there's lots of us out there that you can call for some advice. So pertaining to that, if people are listening to this and they think, okay, that makes total sense that, that I'm, I'm going to begin to, I have a senior animal. I know at some point things, things are going to go down. I want to proactively get things lined up now so that if I get a, you know, when I panicked or when I'm stressed or when I get a, a bad diagnosis or when something hits me, I am ready. Where do you recommend they go to start investigating end of life care. And, and along with that, what resources are on your website for people to learn more about beginning to think about this process? Yeah. And, and you, that's why we built our website in a specific way that we have with a lot of content. There's so much content that we have on our website. And, and again, we've done that on purpose because I put myself in, you know, the family shoes and you're up at two o'clock in the morning, worrying about your dog and you want to get online and find information. So we wrote information on the top 25 diseases that we've seen, you know, in 300,000 families that we've helped. So we know those most common diseases that are seen. We know the questions that you're going to ask. So we have videos and we have articles um, that myself and Dr. Mary Gardner have written as well. So they're all veterinary. Um, this is all veterinary content. And there's a lot of that content on our website. So that's where I would recommend you start first is dive into that stuff, watch some videos, watch some, some things. Now you might be looking at this, you know, too soon, or I'm, I'm sorry, you know, you, you might not have that much time mm-hmm. in which case certainly give us a call. And that's when we have either our awesome team um, on the phone to help answer those preliminary questions. But we also have um, doctors on our tele advice line that you can actually get on the phone with the doctor and talk to specifically about quality of life. And we give in-depth quality of life conversation that takes into all those account, all those things we talked about, the disease process, you know, your pet's personality, your wishes for the end of life care, and kind of put that into a package. That's a little bit more digestible for, for everyone. Gosh, what a beautiful gift, really what I'm so incredibly thankful and full of gratitude that you have made this your life's work and your passion, because in turn, the number of animals you're helping astronomical, but the number of human hearts, this is this entire conversation is overwhelmingly painful. There's no way you're going to skate the pain. You're losing a blessed best friend. What you're doing with lap of love is you are providing a support, a soft support network to get through this God awful process with the least amount of pain and damage. And it has been so necessary in our profession and you're doing it. And for that, I'm so incredibly thankful. I'm also very thankful that you have taken time out of your incredibly busy schedule to walk us through why you're so passionate, what you do and what all of us can, the resources that all of us have available to us now to begin planning emotionally for, for this time. It's invaluable. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Karen. It's such an honor to be here with you. Thank you. 
Thank you for watching this interview. I hope you came away with some important takeaways that will be helpful to you on your journey. This is a difficult topic to talk about for sure, but expanding your knowledge and educating yourself about the grief process will help you through it. We're so thankful you're taking the time to care for yourself in this way.